produced between 1965 and 1968, was scorned and looked down upon by serious comics fans. I myself must confess I also went through this phase of dismissing it wholeheartedly, apparently forgetting that my six-year-old self had loved it. We're a funny bunch, us comics fans. We long to be taken seriously, to have our hobby taken seriously, but we don't really step out of the long grass sometimes to see that some of this stuff is, well, patently absurd. There has to be a balance between loving the material for what it is and acknowledging what it isn't. Batman has suffered more than most in this regard. Apparently, Batman is now considered by DC Comics to be an adult character. Because a man who dresses up as a bat and goes out to hit criminals is the only adult response to an insane world. Meanwhile, kids love Batman because he dresses up as a bat and goes out to hit criminals. Because to kids... That is perfectly rational. Now, I get it. I like this stuff to be taken seriously as well. But there has to be a balance. The single best interpretation of Batman ever is the 1990s animated series produced by Warner Brothers Animation. They knew what to take seriously and what to have fun with. Everybody likes this version of Batman. By contrast, Batman the Brave and the Bold could err on the side of silliness. But then again, I wasn't ten years old when this series was produced. If I was, I'd have probably loved it. The Batman of the recent movies, however, takes himself far too seriously. To the point of self-parody, which in and of itself is far more damaging than the 60s TV show. Because the 60s TV show isn't that far removed from the comics it was adapting. It was much closer to the tone of the comics of the time, the early to mid-60s, than some of Chris Nolan's material, which was really out of step with the comics. I mean, really? He's been Batman for, what, five minutes and he wants to quit? That's no Batman I've ever read, and I've read a lot of Batman comics. The 60s TV show gets an awful lot right, especially in its first season. Batman is always the smartest guy in the room. Not difficult when that room has Gordon O'Hara in it, but still, the point stands. He's a good detective in the 60s show, spotting clues others miss and deducing the truth behind even the most bizarre and surreal of clues. By the second season, the producers had a hit on their hands, but they didn't quite understand why, so they doubled down on the campy silliness. Adam West started playing Batman as being in on the joke, thus making the joke not funny anymore. By the third season, the series was nigh-odd and watchable. But that first season is sublime. For one, the costumes are magnificent and are straight out of the comics. Sure, Batman himself isn't quite right. The ears flop a bit too much and the boots are too short. But Robin, the Riddler, the Penguin, the Joker moustache accepted, and Catwoman are perfect. The casting, too, is without peer. Burt Ward is still 
the best live-action Dick Grayson we've ever had. And Frank Gorshin as the Riddler, Burgess Meredith as the Penguin, and especially Julie Newmar as Catwoman could have walked right off the printed page. I guess I just don't understand people who complain about Hollywood changing the costumes of comic book characters on a whim, yet they'll dismiss this show in the same breath. The episodes in that first season are all remarkably strong and, with a couple of exceptions, can almost work a straight drama. Roddy McDowell is actually pretty terrifying as the bookworm and his sole two-part adventure, The Bookworm Turns While Gotham City Burns, is a series highlight. Other great episodes in season one had their roots in comic book stories. The episodes, High Diddle Riddle, Smack in the Middle, Fine Feathered Finks, The Penguins are Jinx, The Joker is Wild, Batman is Riled, Instant Freeze, Rats Like Cheese, Zelda the Great, A Death Worse Than Fate, The Thirteenth Hat, Batman Stands Pat, The Penguin Goes Straight, Not Yet He Ain't, The Joker Trumps an Ace, Batman Sets the Pace, and Death in Slow Motion, The Riddler's False Notion were all adaptations of, or inspired by, actual comics. This was lessened as the series went on, which may explain why the first season was the best. Those titles are all pretty good as well. Batman ran for three seasons, totaling 120 episodes, plus a 1966 feature film. But its pop culture footprint has been remarkable. The TV series version of the Batmobile is easily the most recognisable and iconic, and has appeared in The Big Bang Theory, Ready Player One, and The Simpsons, amongst many others. Actors Adam West and Burt Ward, Batman and Robin respectively, have reprised their roles many times over the years, in commercials, live-action specials, animated projects, and parodic appearances in shows like Robot Chicken and Family Guy. The Batman 66 gag in the Lego Batman movie is one of the funniest in the film. The most interesting return to the roles, however, was The Return of the Caped Crusaders, a direct-to-DVD slash Blu-ray movie released in 2016 as part of the celebrations around the show's 50th anniversary. The film, which also received a short theatrical release, reunited the surviving actors, Adam West, Burt Ward and Julie Newmar, and was written by Michael Jelinek and James Tucker, and directed by Rick Morales. With the sad passing of most of the other principal performers, the roles of the Joker, the Riddler, the Penguin, Alfred, Aunt Harriet, Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara had to be taken by sound-alikes, an undertaking that yields mixed success. Jeff Bergman as the Joker nails Cesar Romero's laugh and occasionally his cadences, but is much better as the William Dozier-inspired announcer, heard as the voiceover on the Gotham Palace variety show. William Salyers is adequate, but never really convinces as Burgess Meredith Penguin, although he's a decent enough Penguin in his own right. Wally Wingert again nails Frank Gorshin's laugh and peculiar pauses as the Riddler, but falters when delivering regular dialogue. Jim Ward sounds nothing like Neil Hamilton as Commissioner Gordon, but he's okay in the role. While Stephen Webber just adopts a typical snooty British accent as Alfred, rather than even attempt to deliver an Alan Napier impersonation. There must have been rights issues with regards to Hamilton and Napier, as neither character is drawn to look like the actor either. The worst by far is Thomas Lennon, an actor I have enjoyed immensely in other shows as Chief O'Hara. It's one of the worst Irish accents I've ever heard. Lynn Marie Stewart sounds fine as Aunt Harriet, but I never cared enough about Harriet to remember what she sounded like, so... 
Kudos as well to Christopher Carter, Michael McCustian, and Lolita Ritmanis for the musical score, which evokes the TV show wonderfully. The opening credits are also wonderful. We saw animated versions of Adam West and Burt Ward every week on the opening credits, and it would have been easy to ape those for this release. However, the producers opted for a new credit sequence. Instead of the shots of Batman and Robin hitting people and running, the movie uses animated versions of comics covers, albeit amended to suit the needs of the production. Adam West receives his credit atop a version of Detective Comics issue 27, but the crook Batman is holding is the bookworm, and he's being watched by Louis the Lilac and Egghead instead of two nameless crooks. Burt Ward's credit is a recreation of Robin's first appearance from Detective Comics 38. The credits continue in this vein and are really joyous. Here is the reworked theme, although to watch the credits you'll have to, you know, buy the Blu-ray or probably just go to YouTube. landscapes that open the film are redolent of the stock shots that opened many an episode of the TV show. They're all of a bustling Gotham City going about its business. The other recreations, those of Stately Wayne Manor, Gordon's office and the Batmobile are equally impressive and reverent. Artistic license is taken with the animated Batcave where they use the freedom of animation to open up the scope and size of the cave to ridiculous conclusions. In the study of Wayne Manor, the film opens with Dick practising his ballet moves as Bruce lounges around reading the paper. Bruce extols the virtues of dance and how it allows for total control over the body, which is actually accurate. I did think this dance stuff would pay off later, but it's only referred to once more later in the film. Instantly, we are struck by the tool a lifetime can sometimes take on the voice. Whilst Burt Ward manages to evoke his old boyish enthusiasm, West sounds a lot older and raspier. It's not something anyone can do anything about, but in a medium pretty reliant on the vocal performance, it stuck out. As Dick tires as if he's passed a de deux, Ward beautifully delivers a line about how uncomfortable he is in tights. I suspect he's wanted to deliver that line for quite some time. Bruce and Dick tune in to the popular nighttime variety show Gotham Palace, hosted by Miranda Moore, who both Bruce and Dick seem to have a bit of a thing for. Again, I thought she'd play more into the story, but alas, she's rarely seen. Miranda introduces the band, Hector. 
Doctor and the Who Daddies, who all look startlingly familiar. Yes, it's the nefarious ne'er-do-wells of knavery, the Joker, the Penguin, the Riddler and the Catwoman. That little alliteration, though, was my contribution to this movie's preponderance of wild puns, outrageous alliteration and just generally intelligent wordplay, all present in the script. The animation is simply gorgeous. The recreation of the back pole scenes, the exit through the cave, far too expansive and expensive for the TV show, and the 3D modelling of the Batmobile are all stunning. The riddles in Gordon's office, every bit as ridiculous and baffling as the television show, but they go a long way in setting up this as just another episode of that show. The film, however, it's taking its cues from the bigger budgeted film, which was released in between seasons one and two, with its bigger scope, and in that it reunites the core foursome for another go-round against our caped crusaders. As with the Incredible Hulk film, the one that starred Ed Norton, not the Eric Banner version, the first act does something really smart. It keeps everything as close to the show as possible. That Hulk movie feels like a Bill Bixby TV episode for the first 40 minutes or so, before opening up and becoming crazy. And this animated movie does the same thing. The opening with the scene in Wayne Manor, the setting up of the villains and the first stage of the plot are all textbook examples of the TV show. The plot is quite convoluted and rather silly, as you would expect. After this first confrontation, where Batman is scratched by Catwoman's experimental drug designed to whir down his defences, the villains steal a ray capable of duplicating matter. So far, so TV show. But then they get crazy by heading off into space. Yes? Space. For reasons, the villains have access to a space station, and Batman and Robin follow in the Bat Rocket, a masterful piece of design that evokes the Batmobile beautifully. I did wonder how the hell Batman could keep the launch location secret, just how far underneath Wayne Manor is the cave, and how the hell does it launch in the middle of nowhere, but is immediately seen flying out of what looks like the middle of Gotham City. Once they arrive on the space station, though, Batman is a lot more ruthless, happily punching the criminals long past them losing consciousness. He's also had to save Catwoman on the way up, though, because the Joker, the Riddler and the Penguin have turned on Catwoman, claiming she's liable to turn on them at any moment because, you know, she's a cat. This more ruthless fight with the criminals has the captions become a lot more graphic. Instead of Pam and Blau, it says Fracture, Bludgeon, etc., Adam West even gets a nice nod to Michael Keaton when he says, You want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. And the comics, when Batman simply disappears in the middle of Gordon waffling on. This is after he's chastised Gordon O'Hara for watching TV on the job and claimed that they are inefficient and inept. Which, of course, they are. This darkening of Batman is really well handled. His descent from Bright Knight into Dark Knight starts with this chastising of Gordon O'Hara and his brutal takedown of the villains, but then is up to notch when he almost snaps Aunt Harriet's head off for snooping around Bruce's study. He then turns on Alfred, firing him. And all these little clues add up that something is amiss. Batman then turns on Gotham City itself, Using the duplication ray, he creates an army of Batmen and then goes about replacing anyone he sees as inefficient and inept, be it Gordon, O'Hara, Merlin Seed or chefs in top restaurants. 
He even upgrades the Batmobile to a louder, more muscle car version. I actually quite liked that. There are numerous in-jokes peppered throughout the film, most of which at least raise a wry grin. One of the more obvious to comics fans is in the sound effects during the fight scenes. As ever, onomatopoeia words pop up as Batman punches criminals, and one of the words is sprang. A lovely nod to one of the more prolific comic creators of the time, Dick Sprang. The villain's henchmen are all dressed exactly as they are on the show, which is a nice little visual gag. And when Batman takes a blow to the head, he sees three Catwomen, representing the three different actresses to portray the role. Julie Newmar, Lee Merriweather and Eartha Kitt. Sadly, the Lee Merriweather version is not voiced by the actress, despite her still being alive and well. It's to Julie Newmar's credit, though, that she still sounds suitably seductive as Catwoman, and plays her as wavering between good and evil really well. The fight scenes, of which there are quite a few, also have their own gags. They adopt the different ways of handling the overlaid onomatopoeia scene in the show, from the more expensive see-through text of the first season, to the edited-in shots to save cash from seasons two and three. This is the kind of attention to detail that was much appreciated. The death traps are also present and correct, although they are kept to two, but both perfectly placed in the narrative, one at an almost spot-on 22 minutes and the other at 55 minutes. If you wanted to cut this down into a three-episode arc, as many episodes in season two were, this would be the perfect place to do so. In the meantime, Robin has figured out what's happened, that Catwoman's scratch has actually affected Batman, but slowly not as instantly as she'd wanted. He teams up with Catwoman, and with her, they release all of the arch-villains to distract Batman long enough to cure him. This allows for cameos from many of the show's bad guys that otherwise wouldn't get a look in. Rather aptly, it's Alfred who prepares the antidote, knowing from the minute he was fired that Batman was being mind-controlled. What would Batman do without Alfred Pennyworth? Well, if you're reading the current comics, I guess we're about to find out. Overall, the return of the Caped Crusaders is a triumph. Released in the same year as the misogynistic and deeply unpleasant adaptation of The Killing Joke, this film really shows Batman's versatility. Yes, at 78 minutes, it outstays its welcome a tad. There's a reason the TV show ramped 25 minutes with commercials, and some of the humour is a little too knowing and self-aware. But I'd be lying if I said I wasn't entertained. It was gorgeous to look at, with a great score, and I laughed out loud quite a few times. The return of the Caped Crusaders is the perfect antidote to those of us readers that feel that Batman doesn't always have to be dark and brooding. Too many fans now think that a lighter tone is somehow related to a childish content, which it isn't. Seemingly light movies can have really dark content. Look at Snow White, Bambi, or Pixar's output. Whereas movies that overcompensate and go too dark can end up laughable in their earnestness. There's room for all of that in comics and related media. But I know one thing. I'd rather start my kids off here than with almost any other incarnation of the character. The ending to this movie, for example, is quite touching. And even manages to take a nice little dig at The Dark Knight Rises. I'll give myself up on one condition. What's that? We run away to Europe together, sip tea in a cafe, and live happily ever after. Holy unsatisfying ending. And of course we kill Robin. 
The story itself is willing to take a few risks, like making Batman darker, flirting with sexuality a bit more, and does things the TV show just couldn't have afforded. Bat Rocket, really? But overall, this is a worthy love letter to the 60s version, and well worth a place on a Batfan shelf. The success of the movie, which quickly grossed over a million dollars in revenue, led to a sequel, as success often does. Batman vs. Two-Face would again feature Adam West and Burt Ward alongside Julie Newmar, but also feature William Shatner as Harvey Dent Two-Face, arguably the most notable member of Batman's rogues gallery to not appear on the show. The script for a Two-Face appearance was written by Harlan Ellison, but it was never produced. This script was adapted into a Batman 66 comic book by Len Wein and Mike Aldred, but this movie isn't based on that script at all. This is an entirely original script written for this production. Also brought back was Lee Merriweather, which was nice. Sadly, West passed away after the voice recording was completed, but before the film was released. And as such, the film is dedicated to Our Bright Night. Unlike Cape Crusaders, Batman vs. Two-Face begins with a cold open. Batman, Robin and D.A. Harvey Dent, played by William Shatner, are attending a demonstration by Dr. Hugo Strange and his new device, the Evil Extractor. Apparently this machine will extract the evil from Gotham's greatest gangsters and deposit it in a vat. Some of Batman's archest adversaries are brought in to demonstrate its success, but, rather predictably, something goes wrong. The machine backfires and poor Harvey finds his face horribly scarred and the evil that men do dropped into him. It's a diversion from the comic stories regarding Harvey's origin, but it works for what they're trying to accomplish. Shatner is excellent as Dent, his silky tones perfectly suiting the doomed DA, and he adopts an effective low guttural growl when he's Two-Face. He's even animated to look like he did in the 60s, or perhaps more accurately, as he did in Filmation's Star Trek animated show in 1974. A doctor, Harleen Quinzel, can be seen helping Strange, and shares a moment with the Joker. The opening credits then show many and varied encounters between the dynamic duo and the bifurcated Badman, before the film proper picks up some time later. The tone of this film is set by the credits. It's a lot more serious than the first one, and seeming the writers are going more for the feel of the first season, and episodes like Stint Freeze and The Bookworm Turns, which, as I've mentioned, could have played a serious drama if you removed the gags. Curiously, and unlike in the first film, Bob Kane and Bill Finger do not receive a credit in the opening titles, being instead relegated to the end credits alongside Paul Dini and Bruce Timm, who are credited for Harley Quinn. Those who think Harley is overexposed will be delighted that she now even exists in the 66 universe. After the credits, we find Batman has managed to sponsor a cure for Harvey, and he's seemingly rid of Two-Face forever, despite the omnipresent scarred half-dollar. There's no rest for the caped crusaders, though, as King Tut is back. Voiced here by Wally Wingert in a dual role as Tut and the Riddler, Tut is once again up to his usual tricks of stealing stuff to do with ancient Egypt, in this case a biplane owned by an Egyptologist, and then robbing the Nile bus company. Later, the bookworm is involved as well, stealing books about duality. Tut's crimes focused on the number two as well, a biplane and a double-decker bus. All clues point to Two-Face. But Harvey's been rehabilitated, hasn't he? This rather nicely causes friction between Batman and Robin. Batman refuses to believe that Harvey is guilty, and Robin, jealous of Bruce's friendship with Harvey, thinks Batman is blinded by that friendship. 
It was rare we ever saw the duo fall out, even though this is playing with the same beats as last time, in that Robin can't handle Bruce or Batman having other relationships of any kind. He's jealous of Harvey and Catwoman. Batman vs. Two-Face isn't as funny or as charming as Return of the Caped Crusaders, although it's not without its high points. Catwoman escapes prison by conning Lee Merriweather's lawyer character and leaving her in prison in her Catwoman outfit. This is a really cute little in-joke, nodding towards Merriweather's portrayal of Catwoman in the movie, a role she took when Numa wasn't available. There are also more jokes at the ineptness of the Gotham City Police Department. The main plot, though, apes the first film, but this time it's Robin who turns bad rather than Batman, when the Boy Wonder is also converted into a Two-Face, which is visually cool, if nothing else. There are more death traps in Batman vs. Two-Face than before, and the horrific nature of Two-Face isn't toned down, although it's not as horrific as it would be in the 90s animated series. Animation is as fluid and colourful as the first film, and overall Batman vs. Two-Face is fun to watch. As with the first film, it's better than a lot of the live-action episodes. Batman's character is true to the show in that he firmly believes in rehabilitation, and the theme of duality is well represented throughout, with every character in the film dealing with it in some capacity. West's voice doesn't seem as quavery in this one, implying some post-production fiddling, but Numa, Ward, and especially Shatner are all as strong as ever. With Adam West's sad passing, this seems like the last we'll see of the 60s incarnation of the character, and it's fitting that West's last performance was the role that came to define him. It's also fitting that he went out on a high. Both Return of the Caped Crusaders and Batman vs. Two-Face are a lot better than his other returns to the role in such dreck as Legends of the Superheroes. DC and Warner Brothers seemingly came to terms with Batman 66, as did uptight fans like myself. The series release on Blu-ray finally allowed me to unclench and simply enjoy the show and the memories I had of it. It's a fun, funny, delightful series that still captures the imagination of younger viewers. Because, old chum, kids need heroes too. In 1939, Bob Kane and Bill Finger created a shadowy crime fighter steeped in the pulps and crime dramas of the time. That character was Batman. Over the next 80 years, Batman not only became one of the most popular comic book characters of all time, but also became a television and movie phenomenon, appearing in both live-action and animated projects. And then there are the plethora of video games, trading cards, action figures, and statues that have been made of him and his cast of characters. Because of this, Mike and I want to spend the next year celebrating his 80th birthday. And we're calling that celebration... The Overlooked Dark Knight Celebration of Batman's 80th Birthday. Yes. But really? Really? That That's the best name that you could come up with. You've written panels, dude, and that's the best thing you could come up with. It's accurate. Yeah, but, you know, you and I have been podcasting a long time now. That was the placeholder name. We can do better than that. Okay, what's your idea? Well, what did we call it in the first episode of this series that we've already recorded? I I really have no idea. It's a miracle that I remember what books we talked about. Well, that's fair, because I don't remember that either. Anyway, Andy and I are going to be spending May 2019 to May 2020 talking about Batman stories from all eras that we feel are either overlooked or too awesome not to talk about. 
We're even going to have special episodes dedicated to things like the 1989 Batman film and what issues of Detective Comics we would include in a big hardcover collection. Episodes will drop twice a month. You sure about that? To the best of my ability, episodes will drop twice a month at www.fortressofbailytude.com. You can also find the show on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. The Overlooked Dark Knight celebration of Batman's 80th birthday. Because everyone is doing it, but we're doing it for a whole year. The Overlooked Dark Knight is part of the Fortress of Bailey 2 podcasting network. All right, reserve. Okay, shall we have a look into the email sack? Our first email tonight is from Jason Trenner. Bendis does as Bendis does, for good or ill. Hey, Andy. Who took the super out of Superman is a story I hadn't really heard before your review. Have to wonder how that plan to use low-level radiation on Clark worked when they kept time travelling, or if he was going around space, or what effect that radiation would have on the other leaguers if they did that while he was next to them. Also wonder if it was SPF 10 trillion for the sunscreen. You're putting this ahead in the schedule to tie in with Bendis saying he's removing Superman's secret identity is odd. Well, more Bendis doing this is odd, as they already tried that a few years ago with Superman, and that ended with the post-Flashpoint Superman killed and replaced with the married pre-Flashpoint Clark with Lois and his son John. It was quite a good run and sold well on top of that. To be fair, I've never been a fan of Bendis. He always fiddles with history in ways that annoy me and lets me down with stories that he just screws up when he should be getting good. Also, his ultimate Spider-Man was crap to me from the start, as I loathe his bloating out of Spider-Man's origin to six issues when it didn't need that many. It was also interesting having you go over all the Marvel-DC crossovers. Frankly, the only big change between yours and mine is that I liked the Avengers and Justice League one more than the second Superman-Spider-Man one. Now, on to me mentioning Super Robot Wars again, as that's where all the major mecha franchises and a lot of ones that never reach the West are thrown together in a tactical RPG. They even did a five-game story that was their version of Crisis on Infinite Earths, and also like the merger of worlds Crisis caused, if everyone was aware they were from different worlds afterwards. Yes, sanity isn't a requirement for the Super Robot Wars franchise, and yes, I enjoy bringing this up when you talk about crossovers. Yours, Jason Trenner. Well, thank you, Jason. As usual, I never have any clue what you're talking about when you do your super mecha robot wars thing. But uh, it's always nice to hear from you. Our next email is from Alistair Jakes. I watch TNG. Hi, Andrew. I decided to take a break from watching of Let's Play to finally catch up on the next generation in advance of the new Picard show. The Next Generation was actually the first sci-fi box set I bought to begin my nerdy voyage of the great cult TV shows. I initially stopped after only six episodes because they were not great and I had no wish to suffer through seven seasons. Now though, I am a hardened binge watcher, so I persevered. Although I did give myself permission to skip the odd episode. If you're curious, the episodes I skipped were The Bonding, The Outrageous O'Connor, Tin Man, The Perfect Mate, Imaginary Friend and Preemptive Strike. The latter mostly because I've already watched and loved Deep Space Nine, so I had no desire to see an exit episode for a character I know plays no part in it. I prefer to believe that Ensign Rose stayed in Starfleet and continued her affair with Will Riker. 
I will write a separate email regarding my thoughts on data, as I think a discussion of him, the EMH, and the role of AI life in Starfleet deserves it. Suffice to say, though, I loved data, and that's the dog. I have one big criticism of the next generation, which is more an admission of my own different perspective. One thing Deep Space Nine, Farscape, Babylon 5, and even Blake 7 have in common is an ongoing storyline. The next generation lacks that. There are continuity nods and character development, except for Riker, but there's a lot more in common narratively with Doctor Who, with each episode being the story of the week, meaning that in many ways the biggest ongoing story element is Wesley Crusher. One thing that did surprise me was there are only four stories about the Borg, and three of those aren't even Borg stories. The first time, Q is there to bail them out. It's just a shame that I hate the one big Borg story best of both worlds, as that is when Will Riker reaches the end of his character arc, and then ends up in stasis until the end of the series. I did on the whole love Next Generation, though, and fell completely in love with Dr. Beverly Crusher. I now understand how fanfic writers see romance between two characters and tend to be just friends, as I watched The Next Generation, and it greatly implied a complicated love story between Beverly Crusher and Jean-Luc Picard. Season 2, with her absence, is my least favourite series overall. I still think Deep Space Nine was better, but I love the characters on Next Generation, even poor Wesley. I will admit the way the Prime Directive is used in The Next Generation makes me rage. I speak particularly of the episode Pen Pals, who watches The Watchers, and Homewood. I am perfectly fine cheering on morally grey characters doing horrible actions, what they perceive as the greater good. Cisco did some dark stuff, hell, all my heroes have. The Seventh Doctor destroyed an entire universe in one of my favourite books. It's very different when a holier-than-thou paragon of virtue like Picard suggests inaction that would allow suffering to occur is the moral thing to do. One of my problems with The Next Generation was the frequent use of the Prime Directive as an excuse to just not get involved and just go away and leave them to stew in their own juice, whereas Kirk would always use it as an excuse to try and get involved and make things better. Whether he succeeded in cases like the episode The Apple, where I think an argument can be made that he completely screws over a society that's working quite well is up to individual interpretation. But both of them have their pros and cons. But thank you anyway, Alistair. John and or Maggie Schaefer-Hames emailed in. I suspect that this is a Chris and Cindy Franklin deal and that this is John and not Maggie, but I could be wrong. Hello, Andrew. Hello, John. I really enjoyed your recent episodes of Palace, two in particular. Your review of the horror of Fang Rock was as fun to listen to as it is to watch the horror of Fang Rock. I'm not just saying that to stroke your ego so that I can follow up by shamelessly plugging my podcasts, Married with Comics and also The Rod Pod, both of which I do with my lovely wife Maggie. I really do think that. Frank Rock was one of the first Doctor Who episodes I ever saw, if not the first. The BBC and PBS, the American Public Broadcasting Network, made a deal in which Doctor Who was played on PBS in the 1980s during the Peter Davison era. This led to both the five Doctors debuting on PBS and BBC at the same time, and playing both the then-current episodes as well as Tom Baker's run in heavy rotation. It was amusing to hear that Fang Rock was not one of the ones shown often on the BBC, because on PBS it felt like it was on every Sunday. It is one of the best of Baker's run, and I'd go so far as to say it's one of the best of all of who. It was fun to revisit it after being reminded of it by your review, so thank you very much. Well, you're very welcome. As I said in that show, the reason for doing that was I read an awful lot of people were down on horror of Fang Rock, and yet I love that episode. I think it's one of the better ones. I also quite enjoyed, only quite enjoyed, <laughs> it was alright, that, that Marvel DC crossover episode was okay. 
I like your positive take on ranking things. I much prefer this. Here's a list of my favourite, whatever, a brief explanation of why I like them in an order of relative quality according to me sort of listing, as opposed to the, the order that I have placed things on this list is objective truth. Suck it, fanboys kind. Yeah, that's more for YouTube than what I do. Geek-type peoples need to look at things in the second way is probably the root cause of a lot of our problems, but that's a topic for another day. Superman and Spider-Man is also my favourite crossover ever. I would have put JLA Avengers above it until recently, when I picked up a copy in the original Treasury edition and got to see it in its original glory. And it has Doctor Doom at his arguable best. This thing's awesome. They're all fun, and it's more than a bit sad that any future crossovers between the big two are unlikely. Oh well, JL Avengers is canon as far as I'm concerned, John Schaefer Hames. I also appear on Transformers Chronicles with Pat and Delvin on the Longbox Crusade Network, so check us out. I do like it when people put their own plugs in. Saves me doing it. <laughs> um, that's uh, pretty much wraps it up for this time. I hope you enjoyed this look at the Adam West reunion movies. Uh, you can email me in at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com if you so desire. Always nice to hear from you if you choose to do that. And remember, everything's going to be fine. Ta-da! Ta-da!